So here's the question. In the print and packaging supply chain, how do we deliver new ideas and innovative practices to continually improve your profit, your brand, and your quality? Welcome to the Gamut Podcast, and I am your host, Jeff Collins, Director of Print Technologies for ID Alliance. We are a nonprofit global think tank serving the graphic communications industry with 12 offices strategically located around the world to better support our membership. You can support the Gamut Podcast and content like this by becoming a member at ID Alliance by going to www.idalliance.org. I would also like to thank Konica Minolta for sponsoring this podcast. They are a world leader in industrial and commercial printing and packaging solutions. With a comprehensive portfolio of production print offerings, Konica Minolta delivers the latest innovations in printing, applications, and expertise. On today's podcast, we have an extraordinary young business leader in the print and packaging industry who is coming to us currently from the other side of the globe. Uh, from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and his name is Thane Te Phong Chai. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And you are located uh, just east of Ho Chi Minh City. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty straight east, I would say. And we were able to visit you there at Star Print. I was uh, at the time conducting a G7 expert certification course at a company. Um, on the other side of uh, Ho Chi Minh City called uh, Press 7. And Tim Beckley and Hai Zhang An, the executive director for ID Alliance uh, for Southeast Asia and Korea, was able to visit you guys. And I want to thank you for providing one of your star employees. She is a G7 expert. Her name is Tian. And she was also our translator for the G7 expert certification course. So, why don't we talk about uh, Star Print? You guys are a G7 master qualified uh, facility. And again, you have uh, Tien, who is on your staff, and she's a G7 expert. Um, how did you guys get started in Vietnam? I know that your company uh, is uh, uh, pretty old, established. And uh, let's hear uh, from you. And uh, again, tell us a little bit about Star Print and give us some insight into that market there in Southeast Asia for the print and packaging industry? So Starprint established, <laughs> somehow the, the origination date is, is not uh, so clear, but uh, roughly 60 years ago. 60? Um, in, yeah. yeah. I've, heard, I've heard different numbers, funnily enough, but uh, it's roughly 60 um, in Thailand. Um, I believe the, the, the uncertainty is because the, the name changed at some point. So the printing started a little over 60 years ago, but the company Starprint started about 58 years ago, I believe. So, um, this was from my grandfather. So it's been passed down through the family. Um, he had a small printing shop in Thailand and through, um, a chance of fate um, happened to encounter uh, the Colgate um, Colgate employee as he was coming in and scouting Thailand for a printer. Funnily enough, for somebody to to help him with the packaging as they as they expand into yeah. that country into Thailand. So that was uh, even. Roughly 
that was even as my my dad was born. So uh, that that was roughly sixty years ago, as I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- this was a uh, uh, serendipitous. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Excellent. Um, that uh, he he happened to hear a car crash outside of his uh, workshop. Uh, he went outside, being an engineer as he was, he was able to assist the man with his car. And uh, as the guy said, hey, have, do you know anyone who can help me? I'm looking for printing packaging. He said, hey, I, I think I can I think I can do that for you. Excellent. Um, so that established some form of relationship. Um, and we've still got a strong relationship from in both Thailand and Vietnam with Colgate after the better half of a century. Um, and roughly a decade after that, obviously this isn't my story. So, so the details are not a little bit blurry, but roughly a decade after that one, um, we established a relationship with Unilever in Thailand. Um, now in, so, so this, so this was the, the base for the company. Uh, we, uh, produced folding cartons, uh, for these two companies. Um, and slowly started establishing into, uh, children's books. So for the long time, our company did folding cartons and children's books, the children's books export to the U S predominantly, but also with contacts in Europe. Um, and then the folding cartons would be for the local business, for the local sales. And in a situation like you have there locally or regionally, is the uh, actual product that's getting packaged produced locally, regionally? I mean, how does that work in Southeast Asia? Do you just provide the um, printed packaging or is the packaging and the actual product itself co-located, manufactured close to one another? Give us some insight to that. So I can't answer in terms of what it was 50, 60 years ago. I can say that from what I've seen now is that um, these multinational companies, they'll, they'll either try and localize, um, localize the production, for example, soaps and toothpaste and things like this. Yes. Um, and, then, and then obviously then they'll manage the supply chain um, locally as well. Um, and then, then the, entire, the entire unit will be fairly independent or otherwise... Um, we, we also do see business structure where these things are regionalized. So for example, uh, the soap in Thailand, um, is a regional headquarter, um, and coffee for Nestle is regional. Uh, sorry. So soap in Thailand, uh, for Unilever regional headquarter, uh, coffee in Vietnam for Nestle regional headquarter, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, sometimes they'll kind of consolidate a little bit, um, and then, uh, create like hubs for, for particular product categories. Yes. Um, due to whatever efficiencies that you might gain from, from local advantages and, and economies of scale. So do you also produce today uh, packaging that may be used outside of the local or regional area of operations, for instance, outside of Southeast Asia? So I can, I can say quite confidently that, that back in those days, it was very localized. At this point in time, we do get requests. Um, for example, I've, I've worked with um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, so the Ivory Coast for Unilever, um, Unilever Myanmar. Um, so sometimes there's kind of a bit of trading of the supplier, but yes. uh, it's, it's not the norm. It's quite ad hoc. 
that's what about how many print facilities does uh, Starprint have? Uh, you mentioned Thailand and Vietnam. Are there any others? So Starprint, I, I'll, I'll continue the, the background a little bit more sure. for some understanding there. So um, after folding cartons and children's books for roughly three to four decades, uh, hitting into the late 1990s, um, Unilever asked us to help because we, we had a very strong relationship with the senior management at Unilever at that time and even still now. Um, and they asked us to help them establish the metallized printing. So the, the UV printing onto the, the OPP lamination. So um, when you say metallized they, printing, are you talking about uh, foil? Yeah. Using foilers or, or pre-foiled sheets? or Pre, Pre-foiled sheets. So yeah. the, the, the kind of... Um, the metallic, um, what do you call it? MPT laminated onto the, onto the paper sheet. And then we print onto that right. using UV inks. Yeah. Um, so they, we had, we had established that in Thailand and it was quite successful. And, uh, Unilever was wanting to, to establish that capability in the Vietnam, um, product category as well. Yeah. Uh, but the local suppliers didn't have that technology, that capability. So they asked us to come over and help them develop their local supplier. But after some time, uh, lacking success in that, then they also requested us to, to just expand, um, into Vietnam and Vietnam, the, the costs are lower than Thailand at this, at this point in time, but especially 20 years ago, that, that difference was significant. So the, so we had a good incentive to, um, to move over, um, establish that, uh, that base with, with Unilever as as a very consistent, uh, supplier, uh, customer, and then also shift over the children's books because of obviously the, the labor cost differences and and children's books, especially the ones we do with a lot of pop-up, uh, or accessories and things like this are very, uh, handwork intensive. I mean, a single, a single product can have a line with over 50 people working on it. Yeah. So, yeah. so moving into, into, uh, Vietnam was roughly 2000, 2001. Okay. Um, and, and to, to go, bring it back to the, the question before was that, um, so, uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not exposed to the decision-making behind this particular, uh, decision, but, um, or the thought process behind this particular decision, but, uh, the Thailand team was left to manage by my uncle and my father was the one who then held the responsibility for stuff in Vietnam. And these two entities, we, there's, there's collaboration in some respect in terms of we a shared customer base. Uh, we, we do communicate together. Sometimes we, we, we join volumes for purchasing and things like this, right. but Fundamentally, you can consider them as separate business units uh, in terms of revenue is separated, costing is completely separated, and uh, management decisions are separated. Right. So coming from Thailand, a, a, a very different economy than Vietnam, what were some of the challenges that your father and uh, Starprint uh, had to overcome in order to uh, start manufacturing in Vietnam? I wish I could. That's a very good question. I wish I could answer in more detail. This is about 16 years before my time <laughs> with the company. Um, I, I've heard a lot of difficulty in terms of the, the main one that I hear about is the challenge in terms of Unilever. So Unilever supported us very well during this period because they, 
it, they were involved in our decision of moving over there. So, so there was uh, a partnership in terms of getting that working, but at the same time, the expectations of quality uh, delivery, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the usual, the usual suspects in our industry, right. uh, you Logistics. know, expectations are very high. Um, so in a green, in a green field, when still the full, the majority of the team is, uh, is local, uh, the, but the management team was Thai at the time, yes. uh, the, the getting, getting everything, um, getting everything out the door in, in the conditions that are expected, uh, it's continually would have continually been a challenge. Um, I've heard the word it was hell, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, at, at the end of the day, they, they, they managed it. We're, we're still here today. We're still working in the, the largest printer for uh, Unilever in Vietnam. And how is business growth and revenue? Um, how is that being affected one by the global economy? And uh, what are some of the opportunities that you guys look forward to in increasing your volumes and your revenue and footprint? Yeah, we, uh, we find that our business growth is quite, um, volatile in some ways. So we'll, we'll have a, a year or two of stability where we have our existing customer base. We're servicing them. We start some new relationships, but, but that's not a significant proportion of the revenue or anything like this. Um, and then suddenly there'll be a new, uh, a new relationship established, uh, a new partnership, a new opportunity, and, and this will spike. Uh, our growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, and these will be, um, these will be with uh, examples that I can, that I'm happy to give would be that, uh, roughly six, seven years ago, uh, working with the Agio, yes, uh, this the one, Agio. this one coming in and this, this spiked, spiked the growth. Um, and then four to five years ago, working with Crayola, this as well, again, uh, quite an exponential growth for, for a year or two. Um, yeah. Fantastic. And you're in a peak season right now. Is that correct? Yeah. So our, we're, as of June or, or the last few weeks, we're, we're beginning to ramp up now. Our peak season would be uh, Q3 pretty much as a whole and yeah. then spilling over into the end of Q2 and the beginning of Q4. And what dicta, is that a repeatable trend as far as your uh, peaks and valleys as, as far as you know production or you know, if it is, why is it? So you can, I would usually say that the seasonality, um, comes down to either the fact that the product is a promotion, in which case, uh, it's, it's slightly less, um, consistent with a particular trend. Mm-hmm. Um, but our business, uh, our business seasonality comes from, uh, you know, uh, calendar seasons. Um, so working with children's books or, or even more significantly or directly working with Crayola, um, we work towards a back to school schedule. That's a very significant time in the year uh, for that, for that business. Um, and, uh, here locally, uh, we have two major calendar events. We have uh, the Mooncake Festival, which is in, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm not actually entirely sorry. It's roughly October. Right. Um, and the, we also have then the, the, the major holiday of the, uh, of the calendar year, which is the Chinese New Year or in Vietnam we call Tet. Yes. Um, which is all over the Lunar New Year. I, I should call it. So in Vietnam it's called Tet. Uh, and this one is in February. And what is, so you businesses will very much build, yeah. uh, promotional 
um, products and, and they're very, they're very uh, specific about um, their kind of flagship products and artworks and, and kind of branding concepts to be, to be driven around these, these events. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about um, certifications and qualifications, quality qualifications and certifications that uh, you guys have invested in. And you have multiple uh, different ones, uh, some that are not familiar to the listeners here and maybe possibly North America or South America. But uh, again, quality seems to be your hallmark and your differentiator at Starprint. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, investment in quality, I, I don't really see how businesses even succeed when they don't invest into quality in, in some significant way, just because the expectations for consistency coming out of your production is um, so high. I mean, most of my customers, anything short of perfection is not good enough already. Um, (laughs) which, which can be quite challenging. And this is, uh, this is a place where G7 comes in handy very, uh, very directly. Um, so, but in terms of, if you want to look at it from the certification, uh, standpoint, uh, I think that, um, it, in terms of significance for the company, Vietnam for global companies, Perhaps not anymore because people are now very aware of the potential in Vietnam and, and, and people have, have been doing their homework. Uh, but let's say, for example, five years ago, um, China was the place to go if you wanted uh, packaging in Asia, really, uh, on an on a, on a international scale. Um, so if you're wanting to, to diversify from that, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. And these certifications... They, they work as something to, to kind of point towards as to the integrity behind your business, uh, that, you know, the values in manufacturing in the Western hemisphere and, and the Eastern hemisphere are not necessarily the same. I mean, um, and I, and I don't want to, uh, criticize, I don't want to make any enemies here, but, but, you know, the. China and, and, and these sorts of parts of the world have something of a reputation of cutting corners sometimes. I know, I know that there's a lot of very good companies and this is why I, I gave that a little bit of a disclaimer that, um, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a broad stroke here. Uh, China is very professional in the way that they do things a lot of the time. Uh, but, but there are absolutely bad faith players, let's call it that people who, uh, I mean, Understood. the one on the global discussion is yeah. about IP theft. Yes. Um, but in terms of cutting corners, in yeah. terms of environmental issues, in terms of, uh, your labor, um, kind of rights, right. Um, the, the environment, which people have to, to work in. Um, I, I, and, and these are the more, these are the more significant issues. And then of course there's the more production related ones about the ISOs, um, the, the G7 certification and then, you know, some sort of standard that, you know, we have, um, systems in place which manage our controls and our SOPs, um, that, that somebody external can, can understand reasonably easily what, what sort of operation they're dealing with without having to see it in person. 
how significant is having these certifications and qualifications? And you mentioned several of them across the board uh, there for manufacturing and, of course, print quality like G7 Master Qualification. How important is that to win business for global brands? Most of the time, it's a prerequisite. Um, a lot of the time, that if we don't have the associated audit, um, BSCI is a very common one. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, with Crayola, we need to be ICTI. Um, so these these are prerequisites uh, that that you won't even get through the the initial discussion if you don't have this at a minimum. Um, and so for our business, it's they they create. Um, they create some challenges in terms of managing everything. Uh, you know, they, they, there's some inefficiencies that you have to accept, but, but I, I think that it's a, it's a very justifiable and, um, and for usually for a very good cause. So yeah, I'm very happy that, that we have established ourselves as a company, which, which respects, uh, these certifications and processes and, and these sorts of things. And, and I welcome, I welcome them. Um, and, I mean, I mentioned ICTI just now. I think that's a very good organization and, and they, um, they really try to add value to, to that relationship and to that certification by, um, a lot of, a lot of infor- informal feedback, uh, and best practices. Can you give us an overview of what that certification is and, and, and what the specifics are? <laughs> so ICTI yeah. is, there's a, there's a very big handbook, which I would like to read through, but I, I have not. <laughs> but, uh, it's very, the, the things that I have been exposed to regarding ICTI are very much regarding the, the working environment, uh, in terms of outsourcing, in terms of overtime, mm-hmm. in terms of safe health and safety, um, in terms of, uh, the age of the employees, um, the, the conditions of the kind of any dormitory area or any food area. So it's very much just the, the controls around making sure that things are up to, up to scratch. Is ICTI a local, regional type of specification or regional specification, or is this an industry specification and standard? Yeah, required? so ICTI is the uh, ethical toy program. So this is uh, based in China. Um, it's it's very uh, very much the brand requirement. I, I think it's the the standard uh, for anyone in in the the toy industry. Right. Uh, so I, I, but, but the word toy, I think is quite, um, quite vague. I think there's a lot of things that people wouldn't necessarily consider to be a toy like crayons. Uh, that, that will be overseen in this Crayola is, is yeah. a good example. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now the, uh, the equipment that you guys utilize today, how, uh, how has new technology changed your acquisition of new capital equipment purchases? Yeah. So there, there's this pressure, there's this pressure about agility. Uh, I mean, you can see that in across, across industries that new technology, um, is very information focused, uh, communication focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to do with kind of access and speed, accessibility and speed in, in a big way. Uh, and the way that that affects us, It's, I would say that, uh, the most significant change is the, how that changes the consumer, uh, consumers expectations are much higher now. Um, you know, people, people expect 
more customization. Uh, they expect much faster um, speed of delivery. Um, the, uh, the, the, this has resulted in, you know, uh, brands are trying to tap into things much quicker. So, so for example, I mean, sample, sample making, uh, the, the brands want to have new samples out uh, a design concept through to us and then the sample out, you know, within the week and then get manufacturing and to the customer within the month. Um, if you can get that whole process within a fortnight, right. They would be happy this sort of thing. You know, they, they want to, they want to be really quick and constantly staying in touch with the, the consumers through, uh, social media platforms. Yes. Uh, and they do, they do promotional events on these things. Um, I think one, one thing that I didn't mention, which uh, about the, the consumers in this digital age is that attention spans are shorter <laughs> because things are quicker. Attention spans are shorter. So you need to move fast on any, any kind of activity that you're trying to drive. And, and as offset when this, and, and you can reveal even more so, um, this isn't really something that we love. <laughs> well, yeah, so, I, I can so, imagine. Yeah. So new technology very much comes, uh, in terms of, um, in terms of the capital, uh, the physical tangible assets, uh, we're talking about, uh, digital presses. There's, there's pressure on these things. Mm -hmm. Um, there's pressure on having, um, internally we're, we're putting a lot of pressure on our sampling, um, that we are trying to establish stronger sampling capability to be faster and more efficient. Um, and if possible offline, um, because of just the pure, uh, the pure volume. Uh, can you explain to our listeners, uh, the sample concept that you're talking about or proof of concept where brands want samples before they do the actual print run Are these, uh, digital proofs Are these actual samples from the press? Um, is it a virtual proof? There's a lot of new technology that in the folding carton sector where we can see a three dimensional rotational, uh, virtual proof of that folding carton. Uh, so can you give us some insight on what that looks like? So at the end of the day, um, most of the time we'll then need to still do the, the press one for the, the final sample, which will then function as the, the standard. I see. Um, but the, we do, we do uh, run the, uh, the Epson digital proofs, um, for initial concept, uh, review and, and, and initial adjustments. Uh, now the technology that you're referring to in terms of, um, simulating embossing, hot foiling, uh, UV, spot UV, these sorts of things, this is, this is, this is something that I'm very, uh, very interested in. Um, and the, the next step internally that, that we're looking at getting in soon is, um, cause one of our, one of our challenges you can perhaps call it is that our digital press cannot print on uh, a metalized substrate, cannot, cannot print the, the UV. Yeah. Um, so, so this means that every single sample, uh, that runs through runs for one of those projects will have to run through our UV press, which would be all the, our, one of our two UV presses, which then are the, are the leading lines. Um, so, so the, 
the opportunity cost associated there is very high. Yeah. Um, and, and we, we've looked at the data and it's quite painful, uh, in terms of the number of SKUs, which, I mean, the number of SKUs where the, the, the first sample is the final sample is low. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, the, the most significant would be adjustments on the customer side, which then of course we have very little control over. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're saying that, um, for say a single project, you have 12 different SKUs and for each of those SKUs, you're having to run maybe two and a half, uh, runs on the press on average, the, the amount of time that the, that that's consuming instead of, you know, what we'd like it to be doing, which is uh, outputting finished goods, obviously, mm -hmm. um, the amount of time that that's taking up is, is very significant. Um, I, I believe that the, well, I not, not believe I, the, the, the amount of time that we spend proofing is higher than the amount of time that we spend outputting. If you include the setup of the proof. That is amazing that it, uh, the, the time involved that it, so, well, you know, you did say that the clients you work with, these brands are extremely, extremely critical and, and expect perfection and excellence. So mm -hmm. that, that I probably shouldn't be as surprised. The, uh, and, and we've, this is, this is a self, uh, this is a self-inflicted, um, in situation, uh, that we position as a premium quality, uh, service. And, yes. and that, and that gives us the competitive advantage when you're dealing with, I mean, that, that, that is a prerequisite, as I say, to, to deal with most of our major customers. Um, and, and that's a blessing. I mean, in terms of there's, if, if somebody, uh, wants to meet a global standard of quality, they have quite limited choice, let's say this. Uh, and, and we, we always have the opportunity to, to compete and, and try and win these opportunities and, and, and the scale of these things is, is really great. And, the, and these guys can often be very good partners to work with. So you're, um, they're very professional, but, right. but then at the same time is that their expectations on us are, are the, the, the same. Quite so the, yes. In the broad view of looking at uh, the market in Asia, uh, would you say that, you know, 10, 20% can pull that off or is it uh, larger than that or, or less than that? In terms of the, the print, printing houses in Asia, I, I can't speak for Asia as a whole, yeah. uh, but for Vietnam, there are hundreds into the thousands of printers as a whole. The ones that have the full suite in terms of audit, in terms of quality standards, um, ca capital investment for, for you know, capabilities, I mean, I, I only see half a dozen names come up over yeah. and over again. Fantastic. And we kind of want to shift gears here because I want to hear about your personal story, your especially your heritage and your background, because it's so unique. And you've talked about your father and the family business. And um, so your mom is from Finland and your father is Thai. So uh, tell us a little bit about your personal history. So I'm, I'm primarily English in terms of yeah my birth and the majority of my childhood. I did, I did spend three years living in the U S 
Um, this was at a time when my dad was um, the salesperson for the children's books. So he, he had to commute to, uh, to Manhattan to meet with Scholastic and a lot of these sorts of guys who their, their headquarters are in New York. Um, where did you so guys live? I, I, where did you guys live in, uh, in, in, in the U S we were in Connecticut. Oh yeah. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah. So well, I, my, my memories are quite limited, but I do remember having, it's very, um, very suburban. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, the, yeah, I've, I've spent, I, I would say I'm, I'm quite fluent through English in terms of upbringing. And you also spent some time growing up in England and, uh, that's where you, uh, went to school. Is that correct? Uh, uh, just outside of, just outside of, um, near Windsor Castle, just outside of London. Um, so in a town called Reading. Um, never been there, but, uh, I'll take your word <laughs> not, for it. Not too sure what to say. It's, um, <laughs> it's a nice place. I, I mean, the, the South of England, I find that everything is very polite, right? Very, <laughs> Things very are very proper. well controlled. Things are very comfortable. Yes. Um, life is, it's very homey in a lot of ways. Uh, things are stable. And how, how did you, so I remember you telling me that you, uh, studied finance and mm. then economics and finance. Yeah. So well, the, the degree was EBF. So economics and business finance, economics and business finance. And, uh, then, uh, it, uh what was your first job? Did you go to work for the family or did you uh, venture off <laughs> on your own? So this, this was, um, why it's kind of a little bit of an unusual situation. And my perspective is that I never really had any intention to, to work for uh, our family. I, I actually didn't even really appreciate the scale of, of what I was undertaking by accepting um, to come over here and work with my dad. Um, so my intention had always been very much to, to make it on my own. I share uh, the very Western mindset towards, uh, what's the word? Nepotism. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> Um, and, but, but I mean, this is something that I've had to, that I've had to shift my mindset here in Asia is that this is, uh, this is a very normal thing. And actually my dad, uh, claims that it brings, it brings comfort that there's uh, continuity, um, and stability and, and the, the whole, uh, value structure of the organization can, is much more stable. I, 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 um, I have, mm -hmm. I have no, no problem with that. My father, uh, was, uh, in printing. And worked for a very uh, well-known. It's no longer in business, but at the time they printed uh, you know really high-quality uh, publications for Smithsonian Institute, and National Geographic, and uh, so I ended up getting into the business. I didn't want. I was you know political science major, and then uh, he ended up uh, helping me get a job <laughs> for a color service bureau right there in Washington D.C. We were probably about two blocks down from the Capitol. And, uh, never thought, uh, that I would, uh, make this a career, but ended up falling in love with it. And of course, you know, it was uh, right. a real family affair, but it was my brother and my uncles. I mean, we were all printers, uh, we were all printers now, but at the time I, I had, I, just like you, I wanted to do my own thing. And my father, uh, says to me, he says, you know, you, you know, if you're going to get into the printing industry, you know, you wanted to, he told me what to do. And of course I didn't listen but eventually you know, I learned my lesson and, uh, I couldn't be happier. I mean, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to have so much in common with your family. 
And, and, and I don't want to discredit that by any means. That's kind of not really the nepotism I'm referring to. So I met yesterday a guy from Store Ensel in Finland. Yes. Um, and he is, I, I think he said the sixth or the eighth generation now in his family who have been selling or working for the paper industry in Finland. And he, I can tell that he is a real expert. Uh, he's really passionate about what he does about the industry. And, and I think it's, I think that's an awesome thing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my kind of what I, uh, from a very objective standpoint, my issue is um, in terms of somebody who takes on or has responsibility beyond their immediate competency. Um, well said. Due to due to, uh, due to inappropriate reasons. And this was, this was the situation that I found myself in. And I found myself, um, almost apologetic, uh, about, about the situation that I'm in. And I, and I tried to reinforce a um, frame of mind of humility, um, of of learning. So I, I did spend my first 18 to 24 months at this company with my mouth shut in a lot of ways. So, uh, really listen really understand, um, what exactly is happening in the minds of the people, in the hearts of the people, uh, in the, the documented procedures that we have in our organization, the, the, the things that are happening, the, the status of just trying to, just trying to learn and absorb. I mean, when you're, yes. when you're a baby, it's the same thing. You're a sponge. Exactly. And you, it's, it's hard to be a sponge when you're talking too much, right? Or you have your, you know, your ego out there or, or you know, you mentioned humility, and you mentioned listening, which is to me, you know, another word for observation. I mean, deep observation, mm. great, great values for a leader and uh, somebody in, in your position there, your father and, and star prince, very lucky to have that, uh, in, those qualities in you comes across just talking to you over the phone. I would love to uh, meet you in person. Hopefully I'll be able to get back to Vietnam or maybe you guys can come over here. Uh, you always have a place to stay if you come to North Carolina and we'll go do some. Fantastic. I, I'll take you up on that offer. Actually, I think sometime yeah, um, I fly over to that part of the world about once a year. So yeah, it'd be great to meet you. What, what are some of the activities that you guys do to give back to the community there in Vietnam? So this is something that we, we do um, on a kind of um, activity basis. So let's say roughly every four months on average, uh, we'll, we'll have kind of, we'll establish a particular activity to go and we, we identify particular, uh, institutions that we think uh, deserve support and we go out there and we, and we, we work with them. So, um, we, we've had some situations where we've driven out to schools in Mm -hmm. quite, quite, uh, like kind of distant from, from major cities. Uh, and we provide them with, uh, some kind of learning resources, uh, some kind of books, uh, things for them to read, uh, coloring activity. Um, the, we, we try and give them some resources, um, for me on a personal level, uh, and this is something that I resonate, I, I believe with your, your organization is, um, you know, I think that sharing knowledge um, is one of the most important things we can really do, uh, to, to educate, to educate other people is, is such a powerful thing. And especially children, you're, you're, you're opening a lot of, I like to think that you're giving them a lot of opportunity or or at least providing some, 
some kind of resource for, for people to, I mean, people who don't have any opportunity to make something of their life. Um, and I don't, I, that's not to discredit people who, who live a humble life by any means, but, um, there's a, there's a lot of people who, uh, especially in this day and age of, of technology where everybody can see what it's like to live a, a, right. a glorified lifestyle. There's a lot of people who dream for that. I mean, in some ways you can, you can call this like the American dream, right? Is that you yeah. see what you could have and then you strive for that. And that's, and that's a very, uh, admirable, um, way of living, but it's tough. Most people don't make it. And to give people resources from an early age to educate themselves, to, to expand their mind, uh, to, to kind of, to develop more, a, a bigger capability to be, to be more in, in their later life. Um, I, I can't think of any greater ambition from, from a giving, uh, from like a public service perspective. So, so this is something that we do. Uh, but, but we also do things which are, are perhaps less long, uh, long standing objectives, but, but still very, very important things. People need to do these things. We, we, uh, we are associated with, uh, some, some children's hospitals, uh, which, which, which particularly, uh, take in children with, with some form of disability. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we go to last, last, uh, beginning of this year, uh, we went to a mental hospital. Uh, we go to the, the old people's homes. Um, these institutions are places with, um, how to say they, they, they need support. Um, it, it, there's no, there's no super long-term ability to change people's lives, but the, the day-to-day contribution that you're, you're making to these people is very powerful. Um, unfortunately, um, these sorts of, I mean, even in the wealthiest of countries, finding budget for these types of, um, these types of facilities from a government perspective is, is tough. Um, th- this is something that doesn't feed back value to the, to the country. And so finding a justification to, to put a lot of money into it, there's a lot of people who can see that as a drain, a drain. Um, and so, and partic- and the less wealthy that the government is, or in particular a country like Vietnam, where they're so, um, focused. They have such a big challenge on their hand already to, to, to build the infrastructure because there's so much activity coming in and, and accelerating from internally as well. That's absolutely amazing. And, um, wow. My recent visit to Vietnam was mind blowing for me. It was really a, a, a spiritual experience in addition to, uh, discovering, um, New ideas, uh, uh, debunking, uh, preconceived notions of, uh, Vietnam and that part of the world. And, uh, when I was in the hotel lobby, I was, uh, looking over at a guy that looked pretty familiar and it turned out to be Spike Lee, uh, a famous, uh, American movie director. I'm sure you've heard of him. And he was there filming a uh, movie on, uh, the Black Panthers, but, uh, just, uh, amazing place, small world too. And to, to have somebody like you at your age, uh, the level of humility and uh, maturity that you bring uh, to the print and packaging industry, even though you're on the other side of the world, the listeners here on this podcast, I hope will uh, uh, take what you have to say to heart. And uh, I can't say enough about uh, you, man. I mean, that's uh, absolutely amazing. And Starprint is lucky to have you. 
outstanding. <laughs> Thank and, you. Thank you. Know, you. But I, 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 I would like to say that um, these these are good activities, um, but I, I had um, a bit of an eye-opening conversation with uh, with the CEO of a large Korean group a few months ago, uh, who said that really, if you're if you care about um, if you really care about uh, adding value to your local community, which is ultimately what we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, then he said that it has to be, you have to find a way to integrate it into your business model. Um, and so this, this is, this has opened a lot of questions and, and kind of discussions from my end about, um, you know, our global, our global situation right now regarding, uh, environmental issues. Um, and plastics is, is at the forefront of this conversation. I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that it's the main part of the whole discussion. I think emissions and, uh, consumption lifestyle. There's, there's a lot of very big challenges at the moment, which yes. are not being discussed easily. I think, uh, the plastic is the, is the focus if from the manufacturing standpoint right now from in the, in the FMCG industry and, and a lot of these businesses, plastic is the focus, uh, if you're trying to be more environmentally friendly right. and, um, in the paper industry that I'm in, uh, we, we position fairly well in terms of sustainability as an alternative to plastics. Um, and so, um, I, I would love to establish some form of ecosystem regarding local engagement of recycling. Uh, and, and this has to start with education again. I mean, I'm, I'm such a deep believer in the power of, of, of information and, if we had longer, I, would, I, I could talk to you all, all day. Uh, this is my, my, my main objectives in our company in terms yeah. of information flow and sharing and use utilization. Uh, this was where I go back to your question about 20 minutes ago is, uh, before I worked here with my father, I, I spent some time working with Hitachi in their high tech, uh, it was Hitachi data systems. So it's very much about big data analysis mm-hmm. and consolidation, uh, management effectively data management. Um, and, and, and I'm such a big believer in, in the power of all of this kind of thing. And, and education is, is such a big component of that. Um, and so I'd love to, to build some sort of ecosystem in, in terms of our business model to, um, to educate the, the local, local, um, organizations about, um, what can and cannot be recycled. I think that's the most direct thing that needs to be understood first. Um, and then establish the distribution channel, establish the distribution and collection channel to, to kind of, uh, collect and bring those, uh, paper. We would, we would focus on paper, but of course, I mean, why not do plastics at the same time if you're really caring about, about the big picture. Um, and then connecting that with, for example, local, uh, paper converting facilities, paper mills to, to make the, to convert the recycled paper. And then of course the, we, we can then be the, the converter for that. So I think that there is, there is some potential there to, to establish a business model of sustainability and uh, local engagement. But this is, at this point in time, quite preliminary. Yeah. And, th- and th- we would work with schools. Uh, we would work with local government. Um, I, I, I'm sure that there's other organizations I, that, that we can connect to in this. No doubt about it. I, I unfortunately have to bring this wonderful, wonderful conversation to an end. And thank, thank you so much for sharing with us today and sharing with our listeners. I know they appreciate it as much as I do. So take mm, care, too. buddy. I'll let you go uh, get back to work. All right. Well, take, take care, care Jeff. Thanks. Bye. See you. 
Thanks for listening to the Gamut Podcast. If you have ideas, suggestions, or would like to join us or even sponsor future podcasts, simply email me at jcollins at idealliance.org. That's J-C-O-L-L-I-N-S at idealliance.org. Take care and have a productive day. 